You're listening to a Miscellany News production. My name is Holly Shulman, and this is Inside Voices, a call-in podcast dedicated to stories from the time of COVID-19. For this episode, I spoke with two journalists about how their jobs have changed since the pandemic began. My first conversation is with Zoe, a production assistant at PBS NewsHour. Zoe's still going into work right now, and we talked about what that looks like for her, from the challenges journalists face in covering the Trump administration to the emotional impact of a quiet newsroom. So I guess first, what does a production assistant at PBS do? So I'm basically in charge of um, pulling footage. And basically, it's called coverings. So like the producer will write the script about any topic of that day. And then I'm just in charge of finding like the photos for it, the video for it, sound bites specifically, because... Um, So like, for instance, in a press conference, you can't take the whole thing, obviously. So we just have to isolate bites and stuff. And so that's my job. And then I'll like take it in to an edit room and work with an editor to like cut it down for the show. And I'm on like the day of air team, which means we're mainly focused on like the news of the day Mm -hmm. um, that has to go on the air that night. So it's a lot of like monitoring, breaking news as well it's not really working on like long-term feature pieces or like profiles or that kind of thing. It like, it has to have a quick turnaround. So it's super fast paced and like kind of high stakes. You ever, just out of curiosity, is it ever like the middle of a show and like something crazy happens and you're like breaking news and you have to do it really fast? Yeah. Like we go on the air at six and you know, sometimes, um, I mean, also it's a little more wild these days with like Trump, you know, um, he speaks very off the cuff. <laughs> um, and we'll just give like press briefings basically at any notice. If someone asks him a question, he won't like ignore it. He'll like pretty much take it most of the time, which turns into like a mini briefing, you know? So it'll be like 545 and we go on the air at six and we'll have to like scramble to get, if it actually like makes news to get it um, on the air and everything. Yeah. So that kind of leads into a few of my questions that I had for you. Since you're talking about Trump and obviously things have changed in the past few months a lot in covering him, Mm -hmm. um, particularly that he talks to the public a lot more frequently Mm -hmm. than he had been. We went through like a year or so of a lot of tweets and not a lot of actual speeches or briefings or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So how has your job changed since he started doing these daily briefings that result in sometimes very interesting statements. Yeah, so he's kind of, it's interesting, he's cut back on his briefings, if you've noticed. Like, he always had a, like, 5 p.m. briefing every day that went on for a while. Um, And a lot of networks, after a while, there was, like, this debate on whether to take them live or not or whether later on to go back and fact-check them and then air them. Since our show is only an hour long, we can't air the whole thing, obviously. So we just did clips, but we made like a live stream of it available to people. So at least they have the option. But yeah, it just, it's changed. Just like today, for instance, um, he had 
I think like two events that were like open press, but then he went to the Capitol in like an, un, like a very surprise visit. <laughs> and then he was like just walking by reporters and someone asked him a question and it turned into like a mini briefing. So then my job at work today was to like take in, they're called feeds. So it's just like kind of like recording all of those speeches. And so like you're scrambling to make sure everyone knows that first, of all he's talking and like get someone to like actually listen to what he's saying because we need to like keep track of whether he's making news or not if that makes sense so it's just like you can't it's really hard these days to like predict you can't you don't really have a game plan for the day with him you know yeah so someone's there on the hill or wherever he is and they're sending you like texts or videos that are taking live or how does that work it's called like so it's a pool um, it's a pool of reporters who rotate, um, and they're like sending emails, but there's also like a pool crew of cameras who are like following the president throughout the day. And like, um, they'll get notice be like, Oh, like pool was called in like an unexpected turn of events. Like we have to cover this thing. Well, it's kind of adrenaline rushy. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to go back to, there was obviously, I, read a lot about people's thoughts on whether or not it was a good idea to be airing Trump live. And I know that's been like kind of a three year long issue that's now been elevated, but like how to fact check someone who stretches the truth so frequently in real time. And especially right now when it's become dangerous yeah. and he makes comments like a, the probably most famous one being that we should inject bleach into ourselves to kill the virus. Um, so where do you land on that debate of like whether or not it, it makes sense and is good for the public to air live versus like journalistic integrity and that's our president and we should know what he's saying? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I don't know if I've come up with an answer yet, but because it's, again, it's like misinformation and it can be dangerous, but at the same time, it's a presidential briefing, you know? Yeah. So you kind of those things carry weight and some of the briefings like will include figures like Fauci and like Burks, like Dr. Burks and stuff who are actually like um, briefing the public on with like seriousness, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm not sure where I fall on it yet. I think there definitely should be options for people to watch the whole thing. Kind of like we're doing. Yeah. Um, like shoving it down everyone's throats. Kind of yeah. So, yeah. I mean, on that same vein, what made you decide in this really crazy time when the press has been under attack so much and you're kind of moved to DC and career trajectory beginning has coincided a lot with Trump's fake news rhetoric and mm-hmm. this attack on the press that in our lifetimes, at least feels unprecedented and amid all that, you made the decision to go into journalism. So what led you to that? And how do you feel about it now? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like like you said, there's constant um, disparagement <laughs> from Trump on like reporters. And you see the rhetoric that he uses, like, like pl- literally playing out, you know, across the country. Like, I think the most drastic example is when those pipe bombs were like delivered to CNN just because he was tweeting about CNN being fake news. You see how it plays out and how it's actually like impacting um, people's thoughts about the media right now. But I think like news is more essential than ever 
currently just because for reasons like fact checking and like distilling this huge amount of information that we really like there's so much unknown with this and so much new information we're getting every day like you need someone to really like take a look at it and investigate it and actually like nightly news viewership is up right now i think like our executive producer said our viewership was up like 34 percent and like yeah there was like this article in variety talking about and i think it was like the executive producer of like the cbs evening news talking about how we really haven't had like a single topic story since like 9 11 basically yeah and so people are really turning to news um it first of all it's like unifying to to go to like one program or like a few programs every night around the same time and stuff and get your like news distilled in that way but it's also a comforting thing to knowing knowing that you're like watching with other people kind of thing is the way i see it is the way i like see why viewership has gone up but yeah i think that and again like after the election i think like the new york times subscription went up a crazy amount too just because people are like really craving like investigative reporting and actual truth especially when you have someone who's spreading a lot of misinformation if that makes sense yeah yeah Yeah, that's interesting how in moments of like panic like this and after the election people want to be more informed which brings us Mm -hmm. back to i want to focus on the word essential which you used a few times and we've been hearing a lot of recently so you're still going into work every day every work day and um, that seems to suggest that your job is considered an essential job because only essential workers are going in in DC right now and much of the country. Um, so what do you do that is essential and why is it essential that you do it from your office? Yeah, so I'm actually going, I'm on a rotation. So like I'm going in every other week so we can like try and spread out contact with people. We're going in in under like the it's called critical communications infrastructure so we like when this in the early weeks of this happening my boss recommended we carry around this letter being like this is why we're going into work in case we got pulled over and recommended we all get press passes because like this is kind of we're operating under like emergency communications for people but the reason i'm still going in is because so most of our most of our office, like 90, 95% of our office is at home. And really there's only like four or five people in there right now at a time out of like dozens and dozens, which is kind of crazy. Um, but that's just because my tr- team specifically transitioned <clears throat> to working from home a lot later on, just because again, we focus on day of air, which includes a lot of breaking news And my boss, like rightly so, was concerned about the amount of time it would take to coordinate something. Again, if like news broke at 545 Mm -hmm. um, to coordinate with people all over the place rather than being in one place and just like leaning over and like shouting, like we need to do this or something, you know. So we transitioned a lot later than other teams. But now IT is like now starting to like get everyone set up with like the programs and software that were originally just in the office to work at home. So you're kind of starting to transition to working from home, right? When we're hearing about everybody maybe starting to transition to going back to work. Yeah. Like we're finally like starting to catch up with the technology a little bit, but the reason my job 
specifically like my position today, I was talking to you a little bit about it, like coordinating like feeds that come in from like that pool that I was telling you about earlier. It's just, again, I'm just like not set up at home with the software needed to like capture all of that. And I'm literally looking at 10 different TV monitors of like different events have like governor pressers about coronavirus or like Trump. But it's just like, I don't have 10 TV monitors at home, you know? (laughs) So So I want to go back also to what you said. You said that there's like five people there now. And I have this image of like a newsroom floor is like crazy. Like you said, people like yelling at each other and like Mm -hmm. a stock exchange kind of vibe. So that must be super. First of all, is that accurate under normal circumstances from your experience? And how has that changed? What does your workflow look like now that it didn't look like before? Yeah, like a successful newsroom, I think, in my opinion, is one that's like bustling, you know, and you have people like, just like kind of like shouting back and not shouting, but like talking back and forth to each other. (laughs) You don't have to shout. (laughs) Um, Just because again, like, it's a fast turnaround. It's faster than like, typing on like slack or something to send a message so yeah it's it's a really weird dynamic now we're used to sit like two feet away from each other you know like it's an open newsroom and now we're like very spread out we're all wearing like face masks and just it's silent Mm. because just everyone is like just diligently kind of picking up the slack or like not picking up the slack but just I don't know, kind of in their own little worlds these days, you know, and also just like when everyone, when most people are like working remotely, you're communicating that with them via email or Slack, like I mentioned. So of course it's going to be nonverbal. Yeah. How does that feel like emotionally for you? Um, I, I'm adjusting. Originally it was like a little hard because again, so much of this is unknown you know, so like my boss told us from day one, like, if you don't feel comfortable coming in, don't come in. But that's just such a hard decision to evaluate when you don't know, like, just how at risk you are, you know. Exactly. <laughs> and there have been like some coworkers, like I have a coworker who whose roommates didn't feel comfortable with her coming in anymore because she was taking public transportation. So she's working at home indefinitely or like another coworker's family member, like tested positive, like those sort of things. But they have taken like the necessary precautions, like the office gets sanitized every week. And again, we're like wearing face masks. So we're spread out. So I feel more comfortable. (laughs) Do you take public transportation to get there or it's close enough? I have a car. Thank God. (laughs) Ah, nice. Okay. That works. Which was actually a victim to the COVID-19 rats. What? Have you heard about this? No. What are the COVID-19 rats? (laughs) So because people aren't driving their cars as much, rodents are getting up into the engines and like eating. And like my car engine was literally eaten out. Like wiring was like... (laughs) That's crazy. So did you get it fixed? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, because I just, I needed it, obviously, especially now. How have you been relaxing after work? Because it must be stressful. Like most of us are relaxing all the time (laughs) while we're working. I mean, I don't know if I'm much better at finding things to do. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have to because you have to do in the day. You're not a pro like the rest of us. (laughs) 
No, I mean, one thing, it is nice to still have some sort of schedule. I've been binging a lot of TV shows. <laughs> What's your favorite right now? I'm watching The Sopranos for the first time. Oh, yeah, I've never seen that either. And I saw in my, my search for a binge show, I scrolled past it. What do you think? Do you recommend? I do recommend. It's a great show. Also, Friends behind you, the poster. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was one when I was in, I was just in Cuba and I brought, because they don't have like very good internet ever or especially in your house. So I brought a little DVD player and the only thing I had was every episode of Friends. So I watched a lot of Friends for two months in Cuba. Uh, so I, Amazing. It never gets old. <laughs> it's a classic. Okay, so I guess I want to just ask if there's anything else that you feel like you want to talk about or that seems pressing to you that I didn't ask you about right now? I mean, like, there are, pe- like, uh, journalists that are at way more risk than I am. Just like the reporters, for instance, showing up to the Trump briefings, mm. everyone's like wearing face coverings and stuff, or like people are still reporting from the field or that sort of thing, or like all the um, like technical directors that come in, even to like produce our show too. So I'm like very lucky, first of all, to still have a job. A lot of reporters like have been getting laid off recently just because places have had to make cuts and stuff. But I, I just feel very lucky that, like, first I'm in an environment that's, like, being sanitized, you know, and people are, like, aware of it. And it is tough, but I think we're, like, doing a good job of adjusting. That's interesting that I would think, it's funny, every single industry that I would think would be, like, COVID-proof is mm-hmm. turned out not, like, you, because there's a 34% increase or whatever at, at PBS yes. specifically, but probably across the board in other places, too, you would expect journalistic jobs to be safe just like you would expect hospital jobs to be safe i know yeah it's the thing is with the journalists that have gotten laid off recently they're on on like digital platforms um like buzzfeed laid off a bunch of people like vice laid off a bunch of people um and with public media it's a little different because we don't really rely on advertising or rating so much like we don't have commercials. So our model actually, I think may work a little better in times like this, you know, than someone who like, like for instance, like an, a place that relies heavily on advertising, just everyone is not doing well and it's affecting other, it's like overlapping yeah. into each other. This is probably a really stupid question and something I should know the answer to, mm-hmm. but what 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 is the funding stream for public yes. public implies that it would be like taxpayer dollars, but there's no taxpayer. yeah we do get I think we do get uh, government funding like really? in the last relief bill yeah because we're public um, does not seem to like I mean this is totally off track but does not seem to undermine like journalistic integrity if the people that you're reporting on are the ones funding you. Yeah, well, most of it is coming from, like, high-dollar donors. Like, if you if you know, like, the PBS slogan, it's, like, viewers like you, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, And, like, we do pledge, for instance, which is just, like, raising money to, like, keep us on the air, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, like, places like NPR and PBS that are publicly funded, I'm pretty sure we did get funding out of, like, the last relief package. But... 
it's not an influence at all. Like it's not huge. It's not Mm -hmm. like what keeps you running. No. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That's interesting that Trump is, has to sign off on that. (laughs) He hates the news so much. Yeah. Has been like, (laughs) sometimes, sometimes like he'll be favorable to PBS just because we try to, we try to be like down the middle as much as possible. Mm. And like, (laughs) just like he give he's favorable to networks who don't like bash him, for instance. Oh, for sure. But our white house reporter has definitely, Yamish has definitely (laughs) taken heat. I love her. She suddenly, I mean, I'm probably like a lot of people. She suddenly appeared on my radar. I'd never heard of her. And then, well, she asked, there was some really high profile question that she asked and he like really laid into her. And then she kept giving her question time to other people or other people were giving their time to her. There's a lot of like journalistic solidarity that's come out of this situation. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's been like a conversation on Twitter too, is like, because Trump tries to dismiss questions a lot of times, other journalists being like, Oh, can you answer their question? Actually that kind of thing. But yeah, I think she she asked a really good question like a month ago, I think, about how he had like cut the pandemic yeah. <laughs> like, funding in like 2018 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is really smart. And I listened to her. She was on a podcast, too. I don't remember which one it was, but yes, she's great. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, so then the last question I've been asking is, how are you doing? <laughs> uh <laughs> good 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 like I, I don't know how I feel like how is anyone doing right now you know yeah. like no one is doing well yeah. no it's funny every time I ask that or get asked that the immediate response is good and then people think about it for a second like, every time I call my grandma I'm like how are you and she's like good I'm awful <laughs> brains yeah it's just like it's weird mentally right now you know I just have to be constantly reminding myself, like, okay, let's you have a job. This will pass kind of thing. <laughs> the other person I talked to for this episode is Jess, the editor-in-chief of Vassar's oldest publication, The Miscellany News. We discussed the unique challenges student journalists face as a result of the pandemic and what it's like to keep such a time-consuming and essential org running from a distance. So why don't we start by talking about your involvement at the MISC? Like, how did you get started working at the MISC? What's your trajectory looked like? I started out as a copy editor, which meant sort of late nights, midnight to 4 a.m., kind of late nights on uh, Tuesdays. And it was very much just reading over everything. So it really familiarized me with the paper. From there, I moved on to do some news editing, sort of pitching um, stories about the campus, stories about the Poughkeepsie community as well. Um, And I got to know a really great cohort of student journalists while I was doing that. And I saw that as a really great introduction into investigative reporting as well. Um, So that was a really good experience, sort of warming me up to to what this community was going to be like. And from there, I went on to be a senior editor last semester, which meant reading over all of the content, editing, sort of working with um, editors instead of working with writers, which was a good experience, but definitely a different one. And now I'm the editor-in-chief, and it's been a really good experience, but also a very weird experience at this time, not being in the office and sort of doing everything remotely. Yeah, so I want to talk about that, but before we get there, I, having been on the MISC editorial board before, have a little bit of a familiarity with what it's like to be editor-in-chief, but 
And I don't know if that many people know exactly how much work you all have to put into it. So can you walk us through what it was like being the editor-in-chief when we were on campus in a normal pre-coronavirus world? Mm-hmm. Oh man, to look back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was very different. It was so incredibly different. Um, you remember sort of what it was like to be an editor on campus and it sort of overlaps with what it's like to be editor-in-chief as well. Um, we meet, I want to say, pretty much every day with people. So it's not like a weekly org meeting. It's really kind of almost a full-time job. So we start off kicking off the week on Monday nights. We do a pre-production where it's all section editors reading over their content, working with writers, um, thinking about what images they'd like to have. Tuesday, you kind of hit the ground running. Everybody has to f- complete all of their editing We have to lay everything out on the page, think about design elements, think about photos, think about captions and headlines, how we could best sort of almost market um, the work that we've put in that past week. Um, And that, as you probably remember, can go to like, you know, the wee hours of the morning, 3 a.m. sometimes in that really rank office. (laughs) Um, Wednesday is a really great day of the week. Um, That's when we have our Edward meetings. And it's really the most imaginative time because you get to sort of think about what do I want to put on the page this week? Who do I want to work with? Um, so that's where a lot of pitching happens. That's when we get to think about how we want things to look and what we want to put out. And that meeting is somewhere between two and four hours, depending on how much stuff comes up and how hectic of a week it's going to be. And then Sunday, we reflect on all of that, think about what we did well, what we want to do for the coming week, tie up any loose ends. And basically, any time between those meetings... Um, would be writing, taking photos, recording podcasts, doing all the work that goes on the page or online. So it's sort of like a nonstop job, but it's really great because you have that community to always kind of be with every day. You kind of know what every single day is going to look like because you have something that you're going to be putting out and holding at the end of the day. Yeah. And I've witnessed it really becomes like your baby. It's your, definitely your heart and soul into it. And every editor in chief definitely gets to put their own take on the mess. And you guys have done some really incredible things this year. So I commend you for that. And you have the unique task of steering the mess. Absolutely insane to use the cliche word unprecedented time. What Mm -hmm. has that been like? How has the transition to virtual editor in chiefing been? It's so different. It's it's really so different because as I see, it's like you start off your semester, we have elections, we talk about, you know, who we want to be doing things, what their vision is for their section. Um, you know, I sort of view the entire piece of paper as, you know, this is my baby. And like you as the arts editor, the arts section, those were your pages. Those were kind of your vision. And so you go into it thinking about these pages and this thing that you're going to hold on Sunday and like talk to other people about and sort of, you know, maybe a little bit of bragging, but very much like this reflective exercise of holding things. And sort of one of the most, I think, daunting things for me was not having that thing to hold on to that final product. And for me, that was like really hard. Um, and so that was one of the biggest things that was different for me that first week. And for all of us is not having those pieces of paper to be reflecting on on Sunday. Um, so it's been different. And I think that honestly, the Zoom formatting has been a really great way to connect because, you know, people can jump on from wherever they are. But, you know, we have people all across the world who are amazing editors, amazing photographers, amazing at their work. And it's just really hard to coordinate. Um, and I'm sure all org leaders are experiencing that. Um, so we sort of have this unique task of trying to both be facilitating the student-run organization community um, while also trying to do this 
almost essential service task where it feels like, yeah, we have to be taking care of ourselves, but we also have this thing that's really important to us. And we like to thank also to the community to be putting out there. So sort of balancing those two different, um, two different mindsets of taking care of ourselves and being a place where people can feel like they can go to and trying to put the pressure to produce things has been one of the most challenging tasks, I would say. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes me think about how um, like this transition from the physical, the holding of things to Mm -hmm. the virtual is very emblematic, symbolic of what we're all going through right now from moving from touching and the tangible to the online and maybe also the trajectory that journalism is taking and that it seems like almost the MISC for those who aren't super familiar has gotten much more multimedia focused this year. Mm-hmm. Does that feel like, like, does this feel like it might have the opportunity, the potential to push the MISC into like new creative directions and maybe something positive could come out of this? I mean, definitely. It's been really, I think it's been, it's, it's hard to reframe that way because so many of us are going through like such a challenging situation and we're all in different places. And I think one of the first things that we had to do is sort of take inventory and see where everybody is in this because this isn't what we signed up for. So, but once we sort of got past that, we found different ways to make it work and see it as an opportunity. Um, one of the things is that people want to read and we see that as a service, we sort of have this new mission where it's like, okay, people want to read, people want to feel connected, people want to listen to voices, people want to see people. So how can we do that? And I think for us, one of the best opportunities is being able to put out sort of that featurey content and really see that grow. And so that's not only, you know, podcasts where you get to hear a human voice and hear about like lived experiences and human beings, but also, you know, recipes, um, reflections, kind of offering that space for people to either mourn or celebrate. And so I really see that as an opportunity of sort of this changed um, goal and mindset. I think that's sort of opportunity for us. Um, But also just kind of continuing that service oriented um, mindset as well. Yeah, I was just, um, I did the other interview for this episode yesterday Mm -hmm. with my friend who works at PBS and she was talking about how there's this huge uptick in people consuming the news, which is Mm -hmm predictable, but also just shows how important these sources are in all of our lives now, increasingly so. And student newspapers are have a special place in that because they're unifiers for the campus a lot mm-hmm. of the time. So how yeah. do you see the MISC as, as serving that role in this really crazy time when we're all used to living five minutes away from each other? And like you said, now we're spread all across the globe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a wacky situation. Um, we've also seen those numbers sort of tick up, but also in talking to people like one-on-one maybe in, you know, a Zoom, a Zoom political science class, I'm a poli-sci major, um, <laughs> we kind of talk about, you know, how tired we are and of constantly being inundated with these, these same stories or transforming stories and how exhausting that can be. And so I think it's like, yeah, we have this responsibility to be, reporting and putting out information and first and foremost we're trying to be informative but then there's this other situation where it's like you know we're students we're we're not kids but we're like young people and we want to like see our friends and we want to be hearing about sort of the lives of our peers and so I think that that direction has been sort of helpful for people that first newsletter that we put out that was sort of a moment where our mission changed a bit because we had been doing a lot of investigative reporting. We had been very much situated in the campus 
And that first newsletter that we put out, I want to say in like early April, was a moment where it was all of these new voices on the page kind of talking about their own situations at home or situations with leaving campus. And it was sort of like a space of mourning almost. And it's really, it's like really sad, but it's also that was a place where people were almost comforted in this really challenging time. And I think seeing all those names together where they were sharing this terrible experience and some of them were maybe celebrating certain things that went right for them. I think that was a really good moment of like student solidarity. And I think that we sort of strive to replicate that without the morning piece necessarily, but replicating kind of that space where people feel heard and listened to. Yeah. A shared experience for yeah. sure. So yeah. I want to focus on the newsletter aspect for a second. Um, Cause I know that's something that isn't usually a part of your job description to produce this every week. And you've been, you've been taking on a design role that you don't usually have. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about how, like what your workflow looks like in the quarantine era? Yeah, it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, we try to replicate the in-person situation as much as possible. Like we continue to have our weekly meetings. It's really valuable. Not only, you know, when we're thinking about ideas and kind of tapping into the really creative minds of all of our peers, but also just a space to be together, which is great. But producing the newsletter is a pretty tall task because the reason that we had to do it just on one laptop is that you have to pay for the software and we had the account, the limited number of accounts signed into the software. So it was really, we didn't really have a choice if we were going to do this thing, it was going to be that we did it here. And so the other student who's been working on this, Frankie Knuckles, managing editor, they're living with me in my parents' abode. (laughs) So we sort of worked on that together. It's a lot because we have to edit everything and work with people and pitching the articles and conceptualizing the articles sometimes we're writing, but laying out the page is about maybe 10 hours of the job, maybe a little bit more because things always don't always fit together and we need to think about photos. We need to think about graphics and graphic design to make it visually appealing. Um, So that part of the job is basically Monday and Tuesday, and then we can release it on Wednesday or Thursday morning. So what made you decide to do that? Like you had so many options, I'm sure. So many ideas floating around when you first realized that you had to do this adjustment of everything. And you landed on doing a newsletter, which seems really obviously labor intensive for you. Why was it so important to do that, that you decided to take on that task? Yeah, we saw that like the website and digital content and social media content is obviously a really great place that we could like have readership and a good place of gathering almost um, in itself on online. But we also thought that a newsletter would be something like we had them sent out in President Bradley's Sunday emails. And we thought that that was great because it felt like the paper. It felt like something that you would see on campus. And also because it was sent in those Sunday emails, it was like, okay, the MISC is still here almost. Mm -hmm. So again, it's kind of opening that space for students to feel like they can contribute and have their voices heard. Because I think one of our major goals here is like being as inclusive as possible and also feeling like we're, we're there and we're listening. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about that inclusivity that you were mentioning at the end, because you also as editor in chief, besides editing, a big part of your job is Mm -hmm. leadership and bringing together and making sure that everybody's needs are met who's on Edward because that role as well is very time consuming and people are dedicating a lot to this. Um, So I know that equity has been a really big concern for colleges through Mm -hmm. the transition. And I know that we've talked at the MISC before about how it can be really um, an exclusive 
position to hold because editor-in-chief takes, they say, like 40 plus hours a week. Absolutely. And a lot of people don't have time, obviously, to commit to that. Mm-hmm. So how have you been thinking about in the transition how editors might need different things from you in different family situations, different housing? Like That usually isn't a part of the editor-in-chief's job because usually we're all in forms. So how has that taken a toll on you or been something you've been thinking about? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. I think, I think pretty much all org leaders have this thing to grapple with now where it's like, okay, this is not the type of organization that we had signed up for originally. So we all had to check base. We all had to touch base and figure out, you know, where we are, what we're doing, what our situations are, how our relationship to the organization has changed. So that's obviously one of the first things that we had to do is we had to reach out to everybody and figure out what was going on without, you know, putting additional pressure in an already incredibly um, pressure filled situation. I think that like, like I said earlier about the community aspect, I don't really see it as necessarily a, a bad thing that we had to do that much outreach. I think that it should be part of the role is how you guide people and how you are there for people. Because at the end of the day, we are student journalists without a journalism program at our school. And it's almost like this is the site of learning. Like we're doing a real world situation, but we're also learning while we're doing it. So it's like always pretty high pressure because we want to be there to kind of help each other grow, but we're putting out the real thing. So I would say that like, probably one of the biggest challenges was the methodology of reaching out because it's like people don't want to be inundated with yet another email, but like you have to check in because this is an essential service and we need to have somebody fill the role. So what we ended up doing was we maintained, everybody stayed where they were in their positions. Nobody, we didn't want anybody to feel like they were being punished just because they couldn't put in the same amount of work that they could do before. But we just said, you know, all of our meetings are going to be basically open to anybody who wants to come and, you know, contribute when you can, and we're going to do our best with what we have. And that ended up being, I think, a good strategy because it wasn't punitive, but we also managed to get the content that we needed while people felt like they could still be included on the team, even if they were in different living situations. Because so many of us were in, are in very challenging circumstances. And this is a very serious situation where it was like the organization is, it's paper it could not take precedent over the human situation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. On that note of how student journalists are learning on the job, and you're clearly, if this is the educational space, your role puts you as a teacher because you're at the top of that pyramid. Mm -hmm. Um, So how are you dealing with or thinking about succession for your role and other roles in the paper? And I know we've talked a little bit about how hard it is to train one another because we do it on the job. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of the time you take that position before you really fully know what all the responsibilities are. (laughs) Um, That's, that's how the only way to get people to do the misc is to trick them into it. And then be like, whoops, you're already the editor. So no, I don't know what I'm doing either. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So how are you thinking about training the next person and, and what advice will you give to them knowing that we're, we have no idea and you're the only person who's ever had this role in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, 
Oh my gosh. You're right. I never thought of it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Well, now I'm thinking about it. Yeah. No, I've been thinking about it for a while because as you know, it's like, it's very important that people have kind of had a little bit of background experience doing it. And you don't come into college. Not everybody comes into college with that experience. And so one of the things that we've had to grapple with is how are we going to make sure that people know that they're welcome here? Like it doesn't matter if you've had any experience, you're welcome here. So that's something that we've been really, really, really working on. Um, And it's been a problem, I think, for years for this organization. And we're really trying to overcome that by having people, we used to have people come into the office and sit with the editors and talk with the editors while they're going through their piece. So how can we replicate that online? Um, So we've been working on that, especially as we anticipate, you know, um, an entire new first year class coming in (laughs) in only a few months. So we've been thinking, you know, you and I have been talking a little bit about how we can do this, how we can do outreach, have some Zoom events, um, figure out how to best, you know, have a face to be talking to when you're doing this type of work. And it can be lonely sitting, you know, I'm sitting here in my bedroom (laughs) taking this call. Um, You don't have the same experience of going out and interviewing somebody face to face in their office over a cup of coffee. It's just not the same rodeo. So sort of thinking about how can we attract people to the organization, make people feel comfortable And then there's that training element, which honestly, let me know when you figure out how to do it. Because for me, it's just start them off, start everybody off with something that they are comfortable with doing already. Start off with, are you comfortable writing about, you know, a reflective piece? Are you comfortable writing an op-ed? Do you want to maybe interview one source and do like an organization spotlight? That's something that a lot of new writers do. They like to spotlight a single org. And it's great because, you know, it's something that's maybe a little bit less pressure and it's fun to do and it's fun to talk to people and you're talking to people your age, but it's also great representation for other orgs. So trying to find things that kind of sit in somebody's comfort zone and then, you know, pushing them a little bit and making them feel welcome and included. And I think honestly, against all of my expectations, the Zoom format has been a really welcoming space because more than any other time, or maybe just as much as any other time, people are really craving human connection and even if it's a face on the screen it's somebody to talk to on a wednesday night like have bring a bowl of popcorn i don't care what you do like it's nice to be able to see people and think about what other people are going to be wanting to read from you yeah so like you're saying these are really young journalists starting to bud and i guess i'm thinking about how uh journalism has changed a lot through our time in college and the rhetoric around journalism in mainstream yeah. <laughs> media is not super positive at the moment. So what do you think draws students to journalism at this time when it's increasingly, I don't know, like polemic field? Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, it can be really hard to be in this role and like dedicating as much time as people at the MISC and other student journalists and other professional journalists do only to hear so much doubt um, cast on you and your work, um, that can be really hard. And so I think there must be some sort of reward there that really makes people feel like this is worthwhile. This is worth kind of the pain and the time. And I think I can't speak for everybody, but I think for me and a few of the people I've talked to on the MISC, it's really this, like, I keep coming back to this service oriented mindset where it's like, yeah, it's words on a page, but this is the small corner of the world that we can actually, influence and something that I have control over are these words that I can put on a page and these words that I can say when I'm having an interview with Holly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that like people like to think about, okay, well, 
what do my friends need to hear or want to hear? What do people in the Poughkeepsie community and the Duchess community need to know about or want to know about? Who's not being listened to right now and how can I get them on the page, you know? And so I think that's sort of like this three-pronged approach of like, we're here to inform and we're here to help people feel listened to and be listened to. And we're also, especially during this pandemic, we also have this sort of like comforting role. I'm thinking about like, you know, recipes and op-eds that tell people, okay, I'm here. And, you know, the Deese is somewhere, not here, but here's how you can bring it into your home. Things like that, that you aren't doing much by being ink on a page or digital ink on the website, but it's what you can do. And you like to think that it has a positive influence. So I think, I think everybody's really thinking about their communities and, and humans when they're joining this organization and when they're being journalists. Yeah, I totally agree from my end. And I know you must care about that a lot because editors-in-chief of student newspapers pour their blood, sweat, and tears into this job. And it becomes a huge part of who you are, like we were saying before. And it must be really difficult for you to watch this take another form. So for you emotionally, how has it felt to make all these changes? And like you said, this isn't what you signed up for and you had to adjust your expectations. So have there been any moments that have been really hard or really triumphant? How's that going for you inside? Yeah, I mean, it's, like I said, there's so many really good parts. So I hesitate to even talk about the bad parts, but there's a pretty fair share of bad parts too. I mean, it's, you know, going back to the first week when we stopped printing, when we put out that note together, basically we had known that the MISC had been printing through two world wars and it's, you know, it's hard to be the one to say we're no longer going to be carrying out this tradition because we do care about our history. But I think that's kind of the site of where this human first um, mindset first kind of like, I became aware of it, I guess. Because it was like, yeah, these the paper matters. It's, it's holding. It's this. It's this thing that we work so hard to produce. But at that point, when there weren't students on campus, and when there's a pandemic, and you touch a paper, and you know that's dangerous. It's just paper, and we don't want that anymore. You know, we don't want the thing that's not going to be helping human beings. And so that's kind of where it's like, okay, this is what we exist for. This is what we're here to do. So that was hard, but ultimately rewarding, I think. And then I would say that probably the hardest day um, was when we were first finding out that we weren't um, coming back to campus after spring break because we had found out like maybe a few hours, maybe I think it was like a day before the rest of the student body had found out because one, two, a pair of writers, um, Sarah Lawler and Mac Lederman, were working on a piece about it. Um, they reached out to the administration. They found out what was going on. And so we were like, oh my gosh, like, of course, we need to get this out as quickly as possible. People need to know so that they can make the decisions that they need to make. But at the same time, we were mourning, you know, because we're also students and we had to put that aside so that we could work on this piece. And so what it was is, you know, Mac and Sarah, I don't even know how long they worked on that. But for the editorial team, you know, we went to bed at maybe 3 a.m. We woke up at maybe 5.30 or 6 a.m. to work on the piece and edit it, make sure that it was flawless. So that was a really hard day because it was a time when being a student had come second. And I think throughout this job, being a student has become second a few times and that can be a challenge. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of, a lot to unpack in what you just said. Like I know institutional memory is a really big deal at the MISC. Mm -hmm. So I commend you for making that decision to put, like you said, people before 
the, the paper's history. I think that was the mm-hmm. right decision, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to support you in that. Thank you, clearly. You know, that's another another way that you've learned about what it's like to be a journalist because journalists mm-hmm. too are very oftentimes affected by the stories that they're writing and mm-hmm. they put themselves a lot of the time second in order to report on what's happening in the world. So Definitely. there's some real life experience yeah. that you can learn from hopefully. Yeah, for sure. um, and I like to end all the interviews that I do with a very simple question, which is how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, it's a weird time. It's weird living at home while being a student, being an intern, being in an org. But I don't know. It's It's been good to talk to you and it's been good to see people and, um, you know, have this sort of soft interaction across the screen because so much of this is hard and difficult and upsetting. But it's like there's a lot of human connection that I think has been really valuable. So thank you for asking, Holly. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Inside Voices. My name is Holly Shulman, and you've been listening to a Miscellany News production. Hope you enjoyed, and talk to you next time.